few words about samadhi and vipassana, how to bring these two together, how to, how to coordinate them, um, how they relate to each other. And then a few notions about the practice in daily life, which would be bringing samadhi and vipassana uh, home with us. What, how do we, what do we do? How do we do that? Because some of you are uh, new. This is your first retreat. So this is the first time you're going home from a retreat. Um, and I don't want to say a lot about that, just a few things. And then what I'd like for us to do is just have an open discussion on any, unfi- uh, any loose ends, anything that uh, should be talked about, about the retreat and about this particular subject, this content. Uh, Samadhi, or the development of calm, abiding, or steadiness, and Vipassana, the development of insight or wisdom, are not versus each other. They're totally partners in this. They they need each other. And once uh, you become comfortable with each one of them somewhat independently, as we've been doing on this retreat, you'll see how uh, it's like a wheel. They just, uh, one strengthens the other. And it's more a matter of knowing what to use and when. So let's uh, take the example of samadhi first. What we're doing there is helping the mind learn how to settle down, how to collect its energies, how to unify itself around, in this case, the breath, in the sitting practice anyway, so that all of the energies converge and there's a steadiness of mind. Now, there are varying degrees of depth of samadhi, and so all of you have tasted some of it. In fact, every human being already has some samadhi, even if you never heard of meditation. You have, for example, just to hold this up, you know, let's say to get ready to, to hit the bell, that requires some concentration. I mean, otherwise, it would just fall out of my hands. You know, just, excuse me. You see what happens with no samadhi? So, so we all have that. We all have that ability. Now, samadhi is concentration on a, what is called a wholesome object. So you could say certain things like wrong samadhi would be someone who is very concentrated at cracking a safe, you know. Uh, so it depends on what we're using the, the concentration for. But uh, if you keep doing this practice, you here and elsewhere and at home, uh, you get to the point where the calm becomes something more reliable, something uh, that you can really count on. It's as if you can enter it at will. You can, when you need it, settle down. Maybe not every time, but a lot. Just like going to sleep. You know, we can't just be active all day long. We can't just investigate all day long. In other words, do Vipassana all the time. You get tired of seeing impermanence, right? <laughs> yeah. So, at a certain point, when the samadhi becomes more natural, more steady, and something that's really accessible to you, uh, it really makes the practice 
quite joyful because, uh, and that if you recall the image of a home, let's say of a brick home, it's and it often a reasonable uh, degree of it. You, you feel as if you dropped into some stillness. It's not so episodic that you, let's say you're calm for just a minute and then you're taken off course again, and you're calm for just 30 seconds and then you're taken off course for a while. It's more you drop into a place of stillness and happiness and joy and can stay there, or as we say now, hang out there for a while. Uh, and it's, but it's not a trance. You're awake. I mean, you're aware while you're in there. It's just that it's very, very healing and it gladdens the heart. And you come out when you've had enough. And it's just like when you've had enough sleep. Sort of, you come out and then you begin investigating again. And investigation is taking the nourishment that you've derived when, you, when the mind goes into... It's a deep state of rest. The mind refreshes itself. And perhaps you have a glimpse of it, just even sometimes just one in-breath or one out-breath, when it's flowing very freely, it feels very delicious. Just the taste of the breath does it taste that way. Well, if you can get a sense just uh, so you get some ideas to what I'm getting at, what if that became longer you know, and deeper? That is, you could just get there. It's not so mysterious. It's something that happens if you practice. So you, uh, the mind rests and you come out and you start investigating, seeing impermanence, examining physical pain, uh, examining personal identity, some of the, all of the things that we've been talking about. And uh, the samadhi is sometimes referred to as stopping. And the samadhi practice, or shamatha, some of you know it, calming, calm abiding. Stopping means stopping the mad rush of the mind. There's the chattering, endless Blah, 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 blah. It comes to a halt. And when the mind stops, then it can see. So stopping is very, very helpful in terms of seeing. Otherwise, all of us are seeing right now, but we're seeing through a haze in a sense of constant chatter, fantasies, imagination, memories, plans, worries. Well, what if that just slowed down a bit or calmed down or if it just stopped? Then what you would see is that uh, the sky is blue and the grass is green. That's what some of the ancient masters say when they ask, well, what's the benefit of this practice? They say, well, I, I see that the sky is blue and the grass is green. Oh, come on. You go to those torturous 10-day retreats of IMS. I can do that now and I don't have my knees don't have to hurt. But can we? You know? Or we see that everything that arises passes away. So that the, the stopping then enables us to look. So it's stopping and looking. Now, when you look, some of you have, haven't you seen through some things during the time we've been here every now and then you'll get a glimpse of how you're causing suffering for yourself, holding on to something, expecting something to be a certain way and it isn't. And as soon as you see it, let's say it falls away. There's, the calm comes out of insight so that calm leads to insight that as the mind becomes more calm, it's more able to see into what is going on and it can learn. It can learn. But also, every time you learn and you see into something, it brings some calm. So you see how they kind of, it's like how they go together. Because when we're, there's no investigation, there's no insight, there's tension. There's some kind of, something in the mind that's not at peace. And then let's say we see through it and let it go. Even if it's just a few seconds, there's a relief right after that. 
let's say we're attached, we're holding very tightly to something, and we let it go, or it falls away, or it runs its course. There's a moment of release or relief. Well, that's calm. So the insight strengthens samadhi. In other words, after you have seen something, it makes it a little bit easier to calm the mind down. And after you calm the mind down, it makes it a little bit easier for you to see into things. You see how, they're, how they work together, they're partners. Okay, so practically, right now, let's say, you're not at a point in your practice where you drop into this stillness and can just um, be there for a certain amount of time, sometimes indefinitely. Nonetheless, relatively speaking, uh, when you go home and start to practice, you may find in certain sittings, at a certain point, the mind has become pretty calm. Let's say you feel the air flowing very freely through the nostrils, that's one sign. It's sort of not fighting its way in and fighting its way out. It just feels like a door was open. You, You didn't even know the door was there. Okay, I know some of you have felt that it's just a free flow of air or thoughts may uh, thin out a bit or even disappear for a while. Or the thoughts come, but they're not a problem. They're like clouds. They just float by. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so they're harmless. They're not, they're not a problem for us. That's what my mind does. It thinks blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I haven't had a sensible thought in years. (laughs) So that what might happen practically, and you know, many of you are are new, is that relatively speaking, you might find that the mind is a bit more calm and then you feel that you'd like to investigate. So please do that. You know, then you start to look at whatever, whatever, sometimes it's because something's become a problem. as you know, just the way we've been practicing. There's no question what you should investigate because it's powerful, it's taken over, it's predominant, whether it's a mood or something in the body. But at other times, just you're feeling calm and so you just open it up, you're just present. And you may want to begin to look at impermanence or you may want to see uh, selfing or just investigate whatever the most prominent sensation in the body is and to begin to learn about it. So do that. And then there's a, there's a safeguard. Because how do you know if you're kidding yourself? You know, just uh, whether, there is, whether the samadhi is really carrying over into the investigation uh, or you're really just kidding yourself. Uh, you have to really pay attention. It's possible, it definitely is possible to kid ourselves. And a few guidelines. One is, is the mind really in focus? You could say, that what we're beginning to do now, and as we go home, I hope you see it more and more, we're trying to bring our life into focus. We start off with the breath and the soles of our feet, right? Maybe eating. But truly, what the practice is about is bringing our life into focus. Just think about as if uh, when you're trying to bring a camera into focus. Before that is dull. Or let's say you, don't, if you take these things off and then you put them on. Or you have glasses where it's the wrong prescription and then you get it corrected. Suddenly, life has come into focus. Now, what the ancient masters are saying is they see that the sky is blue and the grass is green. Or as one, uh, another uh, teacher put it, when he was asked, he went to China for many years to study, and when he came back to Japan, everyone was eager. Well, what did you learn while you were over there? 
because supposedly he came back enlightened. He said, well, I learned that the eyes go from side to side and the nose goes up and down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All those years in Japan and China. And then he also he said, I also learned that the elbow bends like this, <laughs> but it, it doesn't go that way. Yeah. So these are the wonderful things you're going to learn from your nine days spending. When your friends ask you, what did you learn? So let's say you feel that you're pretty calm and you start to investigate. And whether it's a mood or something in the body, then are you in focus? Are you really there or is it kind of fuzzy? And then, of course, the most important test of all, are you getting lost in it? Whereas you feel that you're nice and calm and you start to investigate, but if you keep identifying with it all and, and kind of get buried in the objects, clearly it's much better, just as a, a rule of thumb. Just go back to the breath, fine-tune your attention for a while, for as long as it takes, and then if you like, then go out again. Sometimes, uh, when the mind's very calm, um, insights really start coming. You start, you're really seeing things happen. It's very light. And then the mind starts to tire. You find that it's a strain to investigate. Okay, that's a clue. Then go back and do some samadhi work. In general, and I'm speaking really in general, I would say most of us really need a lot of work on samadhi because in the West, uh, I think investigation comes relatively easy to us because we've had a lot of training uh, in science, although it's in psychotherapy, a variety of aspects of our education have to do with looking at cause and effect and figuring things out. It's a very rational culture. Now, it isn't quite that investigation that we're doing, but nonetheless, the mind is familiar with the idea of self-study and investigation and seeing what goes with what from university education, from science, from uh, all the psychological training and study and so forth. But what we lack quite a bit is calm and steadiness. Uh, my observation in, uh, let's say, just uh, typically in, in Thailand or in Korea, saw it in not so much in Japan anymore. Japan's becoming a lot like we are. Uh, let's say you'd meet just average villagers who are practicing and they're beginning. Sometimes, let's say, uh, young, uh, young monks, 16 years old, 17 years old, or just villagers. Their level of calm is just quite naturally, they're more calm. It's, it's true. It's quite dramatic. You see that. But also, they're less likely to be interested in investigating. And that's one of the reasons some of the teachers... Uh, over there have, have told us, you know, said we have, that's why we have to sometimes push really hard because they get into calm states rather easily in Thailand and in Burma, but then the investigation part doesn't come so easily. But at any rate, my own observation uh, for us is that if you have found any value in the samadhi practice, it would be a good idea to really do a lot of it. I mean, it's really... Then the insights that come can be more meaningful. They can be really really insights rather than something fanciful. So, it, it, in general speaking, you know, you know, it's up to you to decide, of course. So, essentially, that's what it is. Develop both of them, see them as both as partners. At a certain point, it's really, you can't separate them. And it's just um, verbal distinction. And just, it's sort of, a, a, the mind is very aware, and when it's aware, and when it's doing investigating, we'll call it Vipassana. And when it's just 
singling out one thing, we'll call it uh, samadhi. But it's it's a, a fluid thing of just a, being really being attentive. Sometimes with a little bit more interest in what is this? What is this? What's going on here? And other times just staying with the object. Okay. Um, Let's talk a bit about daily life. I just wanted to get it started and then um, see what happens. I mean, there may be some things on your mind applying the practice to daily life. In a certain way, uh, we don't really have to say a whole lot because the same principles that govern practice here work out there. It isn't that different. Now, I know there are a lot of dramatic differences, like we've been silent. The content, the form is very different. And it's very simplified here. It's much easier to do what we're doing here than when you go out into the world. You know, we all know that. But the principle is not different. The principle has to do with wakefulness and learning. It has to do with the development of wisdom and compassion. Okay, so let's say here, for the sitting practice, I don't think there's really much to be said. Uh, Those of you who have been here for a while, you know that it's helpful to develop a regular sitting practice. That means on a daily basis, far more valuable than than if it's sporadic. Let's say sitting for an hour and a half and then a week goes by and then sitting for four hours and then a month goes by, sitting for 17 hours. Then uh, It's much better if it's smooth. That is, uh, just even, day in and day out. And find what's right for you. For one person, sitting for 20 minutes is an eternity. For someone else, an hour is just getting warmed up. And we've had all the support here, but you won't have so much support when you go home, perhaps. So, work it into your life. But the actual practice is just what we've been doing. But what happens when we unfold our legs and then we meet the world? Again, it's similar to what's been emphasized here. That is, to bring attention to everything you're doing. You know, If you're walking, really know you're walking. If you're eating, know you're eating. Of course, there's one huge difference. And that is when we leave here and we start to talk and we go to work and we have families and we have relationships. Relationships, that's the big difference. These relationships talk. (laughs) You know what I mean? We can't just say, shh. (laughs) I I learned to like silence. And why don't we just live together uh, in silence? We'll, we'll train the children to be silent and my boss to be silent and my professor to be silent. Everyone will be silent, my patients. One of the most important things we have to learn is how to survive in a world of non-meditators. How are we going to do that? These people who don't meditate and they don't want to meditate and they love meat. They love nice red meat and boxing and all kinds of other things. And they feel a strong nuclear policy is the only way to have peace. Okay. okay, these are human beings like us. They're not different. We're the same. We're all the same. And also even the people, let's say, who, who agree with us. So that the principle is, again, can we develop alertness in relationship now? And that's a new challenge. Now, some of it was here because you can't help but have reactions to people, right? Even though we say, keep your eyes down, avert, but you know, 
We all know what goes on, right? We've all been... Uh, one thing we know, everyone knows everyone else's socks. Right? <laughs> yeah. One retreat, one person had a fetish of always wearing two different socks and aroused so much interest. You know, the whole retreat converged on this one person with green and a blue sock. You know, just... How... But you've had some taste. We've had reactions to each other. So that the key is in becoming aware to our, of our reactions. Now, one image that might help is relationship is a mirror. So that, and I'm not just talking about intimate relationships. I'm not talking about marriage or partners or, or uh, parents and children or friends. Anytime we come in contact, there's some kind of a relationship happening. It may not be intimate. But what I mean is that it, there's an effect. Anytime some, a person comes in our present, we have some effect, even if it's total disregard. Like, let's say you put 25 cents down and someone gives you the Boston Globe. And, you know, it's like two machines exchanging. But that's what happened. I mean, that's, that's how you took that person and that's how they took you. So the sensitivity comes in. They're a mirror in that people um, stimulate certain reactions in us. I mean, we can't help ourselves. We like some people. We don't like other people. Uh, you know, the whole interpersonal uh, situation. I was going to call it something else. Yeah. You start? Okay. Situation, it sounds pretty neutral. Yeah. Okay, so that, that means uh, now when somebody produces a reaction, let's say you come in the presence of someone and suddenly you find yourself feeling a certain way, drawn to them, withdrawn, harsh, kind, whatever your reaction is, can we be aware of our reactions and can our reflexes get a, a little bit more quick so that we understand what... See, this person is teaching us something about ourselves because it's not that it came out of them, it's that we have these tendencies inside ourselves. And this person comes and then it, it pops out. So we learn something about ourselves. You know, it's not like that person, uh, you know, whenever I'm around them, they're just so awful. I mean, they, they make me be an awful person too. You know, I would just be a saint if they weren't around. But the truth is that we, we have that tendency inside of us. And so it produces a reaction. And if you're willing to assimilate that into the practice, that means that everything is practice. And it's, it's, or put another way, our life, practice life, it's the same thing. It's a life of awareness. It's a life of bringing awareness into whatever we do. And when we sit, that's extremely important. But when we're doing things working, meeting with people. It's not less spiritual. Now, we can't help but at some level feel that it is less spiritual. And that's a big problem among meditators, in my opinion. Uh, that is, at some subtle level, we feel that what's obviously Dharma is when we come to IMS and do a retreat and walk slowly and have our eyes down and don't talk. That's obviously spiritual and valuable. We're doing our practice. But how about when you're vacuuming at home? That's a waste of time. You know? Or how about when, you know, all these many miscellaneous things that fill up our life. But that's a fragmented view. It's a, it's a misuse of the practice. Because the Buddha talked many times about how the practice is developing mindfulness in all four postures. Sitting, standing, lying down, walking. Which was a way of saying life. So that means wherever we are, Whatever the situation, there is the possibility of being awake. 
There's the po- if there's a possibility of being awake, there's a possibility of learning something. And as we all know, if there's the possibility of doing something foolish, which we do, then there's also the possibility of learning about how we were foolish in that moment, letting go of that, and wising up a bit. So we need foolishness. You know, to, to show us that, oh, that's not a correct action. Look what it did. I feel terrible. I hurt this person. How did that happen? Now, often we do that in retrospect, after it's over, after the smoke clears, you know, or in a therapist's office. But what if we could become more sensitive? And what if we could be more awake as we're living our life out? That life would be accompanied by awareness. Let me take a few very, very trivial, in quotes, trivial examples, because, or let's just call them small actions, because our life is, so much of our life is made up of actions like this. These actually happen to people in Cambridge. I'm sure they happen elsewhere. Uh, I don't think you can get smaller than this, but maybe there is some stuff. Person goes into the supermarket, goes for their favorite brand of yogurt. This is not an interpersonal thing. This is just ways in which the practice can be helpful. And reaches for their favorite brand of yogurt and it's not there. And it's all out. That section cleared out. Those, that brand was all bought out. And there are other brands. Suddenly at that moment, there's a bit of annoyance, slight depression. You know, I've been shopping here. For, this is reported to me. You know, I'm a good customer. and I, you know, Disappointment. You know. Now, it's not much. That's really nothing. It's just trivial. Maybe the whole thing lasts five seconds. It's a sort of a drop in consciousness, a tightening of the body, a bit of annoyance. Okay, this person who's doing the practice immediately slipped in under it and saw there was an attachment to a particular brand of yogurt. Attachment equals suffering. You want, you know, X kind of yogurt. If you don't get X yogurt, we suffer. It's as simple as that. Okay, so seeing that uh, eased it. It's sort of like fell away much more quickly. So you take another brand of yogurt. Okay. Now, in itself, that is probably nothing. Maybe you're starting to yawn. You know? okay. But also, think of it in this way. It's a small kind of bondage. It's, a, it's, a, it's 10 seconds or 30 seconds or a minute of slavery. You're enslaved to something in your mind. It's not the yogurt. It's your mind. We're enslaved to it. There's a little bit of suffering. And then if we see through it, we see wisdom, sees through it, truth discerning awareness, sees what is happening. I'm grasping onto something and look what it's doing for me. And there's a letting go and there's a moment, let's say maybe it's just two seconds, of relief and release. Suddenly it's, things are smooth again. I don't have to feel badly because I can't get my yogurt. Okay. Another, now we're getting a little bit more complicated. You're online in the same supermarket. And you want to get somewhere. Roughly, you know, you're trying to get somewhere at a certain time and you're going through and suddenly the the person ahead of you, uh, instead of just paying for their, you know, it's all added up, they suddenly decide they want to pay by check. Have you ever had that one? And in the particular place that I have in mind, then the, the person back at the counter says, well, you can't pay by check, you have to join. You see, and if you go over there, uh, they'll check you know, your bank balance and stuff. But I re- that'll take a few weeks. But in the meantime, you can go there and show some ID and we can clear this check. And you know, you're standing there while this is going on, 
just in front of me. This person has to decide to join. I've got to get somewhere and they want to join Bread and Circus. You know, and you start, the foot starts tapping and, you know. Okay. Again, it's not so much, but what, here are a number of options. One is, you look at your own irritability. You know, you feel yourself, the tension becomes our teacher. Anytime you feel any tension, go to work. I mean, it's just obvious. There's something that, something going on. Some, any kind of resistance, tension, there's holding, there's attachment somewhere. It could be very tiny. And the body, of course, is always, and the breath, both of them, show us. So that one is you turn to that. You see your impatience. You see your irritability. You don't try to smooth it over by an act of will. You know, like make yourself into a tolerant chopper. You know, who's willing to, to, oh, I understand. You know, we all talk ourselves into a lot of things. I'm not talking about that. I mean, you see what this produced in you. And that's what I meant, that it's a mirror. This person doesn't do does something and suddenly you find out you might have an ideal of yourself as being this very... You see, this happened to me. That's why I'm talking. <laughs> you have an ideal of being this very patient meditation teacher. But suddenly you find out that somebody decides to pay and you're irritable. That's a fact. Okay, the self-image is also a fact, but it's obviously there's something... This fact doesn't fit the other fact. Okay. So, you, either you turn to the irritability or the impatience. It's slight. Not much. You turn to it, or you can switch to the breath. At that moment, realize there's no need to do this, and just feel feel the breathing, however it is, wherever you pick it up, so that you switch out of that what what it could be a little bit of suffering, unnecessary. Or you bring your attention to your impatience while staying in touch with the breathing, and the breathing is a support. Whatever is helpful for you. So you see, I mean, there are possibilities, but they're all premised on our learning how to stay alert and sensitive in the middle of social interaction. And seeing just what is happening to us as we uh, come amidst people. So it's the same principle. It's still awareness of something, and it's still a willingness to learn. Okay, now, in terms of relationship, the... Um, one of the most important, in addition to just this staying awake, staying open, uh, is bringing metta into your life. Metta is not reserved for formal sitting. It's not just, you know, when you sit and I'm going to do an hour of metta. Um, you can radiate out metta anywhere at any time, wherever you are. Uh, I do the metta practice primarily in the streets. I don't use it in sitting so much for some reason. I use it more on the public transportation in Boston or walking through Central Square. Those of you who know Boston know why. (laughs) But let's say if you have a relationship and metta starts to more and more uh, permeate it, whatever the relationship is, intimate or otherwise, uh, more and more is that... um, quality of life becomes something that seems obvious, obviously needed. And also, everyone benefits from it. More and more, um, we use our, our, our situations to express love, we, to, to express affection. Not faking it. We're really developing that capacity that we all have to some degree. Now, if you're doing the sitting sometimes, as you know, it's a samadhi practice, and as your samadhi gets stronger, the metta gets stronger, and then 
it's easier to radiate it or to, to transfer it or to offer it to people outside. Also, as you do that, that's part of a, the, the last thing I'd like to say, because I'd really rather hear what you have on your mind, is bringing samadhi into daily life. The yogurt and the standing on line and just, you can imagine all the creative possibilities between people if you're going to stay awake, and especially if both people are willing to do it, then everyone benefits and a lot of learning can go on. That's more bringing insight into daily life. And the samadhi part has been mentioned here, I think, uh, enough. And that is, whatever it is you're doing, do it. So that uh, bring undivided attention into what, you, what you're doing. Like right now, it's listening for you and it's talking for me. And later on, it might be chopping up the vegetables or it might be making your bed or it might be whatever it is. If you can learn how to uh, give yourself over to what you're doing so that whatever it is you're doing from the most seemingly trivial thing to very important things, you know, important people are coming to visit me today. So it's amazing how clean the house gets and what good food gets brought out. But then some schlump comes to visit you. That's a poly term for someone who's not that important. It's a, it's a Jewish term. It's not very important. Suddenly, you don't have the same high standards. You know, you open up a can, throw it out. And cobwebs all over the house. Because you don't care what that person's opinion is. Well, what it is, is again, have it developing respect for life, really. In where, wherever you find it, in Jewish mysticism, and they um, uh, have a nice guideline. It's sort of uh, God entrusts a small portion of the universe to each one of us. In other words, we're each in charge of a small part of the world. Some are in charge of bigger parts, you know, like presidents and commissars and people like that. But let's say each one of us, as we go through life, we're entrusted. God has entrusted us with some portion of the universe. Well, are we doing our job? How are we caring for it? That includes people and places and animals and whatever it is. If you start to look at it that way, it becomes rather interesting that everyone has a very dignified job to do, very very useful job to do, at least potentially. And so this is, these are all more attitudes. Begin to develop the attitude of doing things wholeheartedly of becoming one with what you do. So that's samadhi in action. The more you do that, the more you're going to find that it helps your sitting practice. The more the sitting practice develops, the more you'll see that that helps you with the the samadhi in action. Okay. um, Any loose ends about anything we've been doing or about the fact that we are moving towards the end of the retreat and that we'll be taking the practice elsewhere and any confusion about what to do or how to do it? Anything you'd like to talk about, essentially? Sort of using the example of when you're shopping, um, you find yourself irritable or impatient. Um, the idea, I'm just asking for clarification, the idea is not to become patient or to Judge impatience or anything. The idea is to just notice the impatience. Okay. Uh, the idea is to become patient because patience is a very uh, important spiritual quality, extremely helpful. 
But we learn how to become patient. One of the main ways that we learn, it's not the only way, but one of the main ways that we learn how to become patient is becoming an expert on impatience. That is, these challenges, uh, how else are we going to learn? Now, to take the extreme, uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, has said that he develops patience using Chinese communists. <laughs> Whereas, what, what he's saying is that, uh, and this comes from, this is an ancient teaching in Buddhism, that how important enemies are. Anyone could, you know, if you have friends, you know, or people you love, you get impatient, but okay, it's healed very quickly. But what about if people are really, really make it different, difficult for you? So that, but let's say most of us don't have it that extreme, but it's whatever produces the impatience, instead of, let's say, doing an impersonation of being a patient person, you know, or like as an act of will, just smothering the impatience, whatever that would be, you know, big smile. And, uh, it's very softly seeing the starting point is the truth. The starting point, the truth, is the truth of my impatience in this moment. It's not that I'm an impatient person. That would be the kind of oversimplification we got at in talking about selfing. You know, we, where we take any quality and feature it and then just plaster it on the person. That person, you know, they don't lend you a quarter when you want it. What a cheap per- You know, just <laughs> really, just so stingy, you know. It's an oversimplification. So that it's taken moment to moment. That is, wherever you, these occasions where you find uh, impatience are wonderful opportunities to grow into patience and grow into it in a, in a way that can be trusted. You see, if we're constantly cultivating ideals, probably you know this, we're always approximating some ideal. Then have they proven to be reliable for you? They haven't for me. You know, trying to be nonviolent, trying to be, trying. Well, the approach in Vipassana is a little different. We also do cultivate positive qualities. For example, if you cultivate metta, loving kindness, and the whole point in metta is to uh, make the range broader so it includes more and more beings and more intense to go more deeply into it, it you're going to be, the likelihood of you being impatient is going to be less. Because, you know, you see a person is love there. Okay, so they just decided that they want to, you know, join bread and circus. You know, just another one of our family, you know, just another brother or sister. But if, you don't, if that isn't prominent in that moment, you know, all you care about is yourself. You know, and you have... Okay, but what you're asking, I'd like to answer it in a more general way because a lot of what's learned in the approach, the way of Vipassana, is exactly we come to these qualities through, through the absence of them. Like if you want stillness, we come to it through noise and uh, irritability. Uh, if you want nonviolence, we come through it through learning about how violent we are. Can you see how that's more reliable? That as you begin, many of us, maybe everyone here wants to be nonviolent. And that's good as an ideal. And I'm not saying to not control behavior that's going to be violent. But uh, you can also see that if we could get in touch with our, those moments when we are violent, when we're aggressive, verbally or otherwise, and as we start to let go of that, then the kind of nonviolence that we have can be trusted because it, because you're, you're not covering up and holding something down that wants to come out, namely violence. We come to infinity by seeing how finitized, how limited, how we limit ourselves so much. A lot of our practice is that, seeing 
how we limit ourselves with this attitude and limit ourselves with this emotion and by doing this and do I'm not the kind of person who can do this and I'm not the kind of person who can do that. And it's through seeing how we limit ourselves that suddenly a limit falls away and, and there's more space and you're not as limited. Well, it comes from not trying to be less limited, but by being honest with your limitation. You know, tell me another quality. It's, it's a little bit like that. It's a, that's one general thrust of the practice. It's just seeing impatience, getting to know it. Usually that takes the sting out of it or the starch out of it. It falls away and then more and more uh, it's less likely to happen. If you're in a situation um, that gets out of hand before your awareness, as you say, gets quicker and quicker, let's say you're in the middle of a a relationship and it gets out of hand and you see the affect yeah. You can't just excuse me. I need to breathe for a while. <laughs> Who said? Who said you can't? Imagine if you're really caught up in the affect and yeah. you didn't have the presence of mind before that you're going to have it. Then. Yeah. Okay. This is hard to answer because if both people are on the path. They can help each other. For example, the one who is who's less out of control can say, "What's happening right now? You know, where are we? You know, this is all new AGs, isn't it?" But what I mean is, we can do that. But let's say now, from the point of view of of an individual, let's say you pick up on, you know, you're, you've lost it. You're out of control, and that happens a lot in relationship. But at a certain point, perhaps you come in contact with it. Uh, it's not that you have to follow your breathing. It's that, that just to remember that, what, that you're out of control, you just notice it, has a, a breaking quality to it. It slows us down. And then as you begin to investigate, you may even do something, let's say uh, one teacher suggested, and it's a very good practice. Uh, some of you have heard of her, Vimala Thakkar, um, who's come to our center uh, off and on. And just what she said is, supposing it's all over and you have blown it, she said, it's a very good practice to go back to the person and apologize. Just say, you know, I just realized what I, that was all wrong. I mean, I was just defending myself. And, and it may be an hour later or maybe two days later, you go and you apologize. It's hard for us to do, but it has a very wonderful effect. But now in the middle of it, which is what you're more concerned about. Well, you know, obviously somewhere along the line, you are going to catch it. Mm-hmm. And I, just, I guess I'm just sort of wondering yeah. what that's like. Okay. Well, uh, some of what it's like is as you d- you'll have to find. Okay. Think of it this way: um, as the practice develops, um, what people tend to notice is that you pick up on the onset of, let's say, it's uh, aggression or a fight about to happen. You start to feel like the irritability, like back there. You know, you just feel like you feel some movement of the neck or something. You catch it before it's full blown. That, that is one thing that happens with practice. You begin to see that. The other is, and th- this to me is, the, is the, the main one, it becomes hard, as the mind gets more calm, it gets harder and harder to bear a false note. You know, in other words, if you're wanting to be right and in, pro- in the process of bullying someone, and then there's a bit of quiet, and if you're doing this practice, you know it. You know, it's just hard to escape. The other person doesn't even have to bring it up. You just realize what you said was off. What you're doing is you, you see why you're doing it and uh, you pick up from where you are. I mean, you start right there. It's, of course, very helpful if both people are committed to a, a genuine dialogue. What do you do in a situation where it's not even another person? Let's say it's just the CBS News. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, okay, that's a good one. Okay. Okay, let me give you an example. This happened just a few, uh, a couple of days ago in the staff dining room. Okay, someone was reading all, you know, Greenpeace and Toxic Times and just seeing, you know, this, this world is in bad shape. Is there anyone who doesn't agree with that? I mean, it's in, and it's, okay. And so this person, you know, was, we have a little breakfast club in there, you know, we're sitting eating breakfast and the person had, uh, had read all these and came in very, you know, on the depressed side and just saying, I've been reading these periodicals late last night and I woke up just feeling, and this went on for a few moments, I didn't say anything, but you know, a few moments and a few more moments and, and then it was about uh, Greenpeace and about helping here and helping. And then what you saw was that the person was very, very down about the situation in the world. Okay. And I don't, you know, it's hard not to play teacher wherever you go. I try not to. <laughs> but here, of course, you know, it's, it's more legitimate. But anyway, we talked and um, the person was really troubled by, by periodically feeling awful about the way the world was going. Well, the world has always been going awful. You know, it's not new. The world is samsara, you know. And now the stakes are higher. You know, maybe it's not bow and arrows now. You know, it's nuclear weapons. But also, worlds come to an end. Now, I'm not talking about this in terms of that we should be complacent and just let everything happen. Not at all. But there is also another truth. Okay. Let's say it's something like that. Now, you're outraged about something. Now, in that moment, are you helping the problem of pollution, let's say? Especially if this is a recurrent thing. Now, every now and then, we all do it. But if the person is in the habit of feeling very, very bad about the way the world is, then I feel this practice can be tremendously helpful. First of all, what have they accomplished? Nothing. That is, they're not joining Greenpeace. They're not going out and helping in some way so that they, you know, there's a dissatisfaction, they're going to do something about it. If it doesn't work, at least they've done something about it. What they're doing is just commenting on how bad it is and getting depressed. So they've added one more casualty to the world. You know, now, whatever the number of casualties, it's you know, 10 billion plus one. And nothing's improved. There isn't any less toxin in the world. And now there's one more toxic person in the world. I don't see the point. Okay. So that it seems to me what the option the person has is, is uh, seeing through it. Again, it's not to say how great everything is, but what is to be added by our personal depression uh, in that way? Because it's a kind of helplessness. Okay. It is really going to the root of our sense of helplessness. Okay. And either doing something about it or releasing ourselves from something that is futile because it's not really amounting to anything. This is just the way I feel about it. Now, in the process, you are doing something about that because one of the main ways in which we all uh, bring toxins into the world is by being, un, you know, just loading our moods on top of each other. Now, if this person could actually be happy, the Dalai Lama is happy. Anyone who's met him knows he's a happy man in the midst of a catastrophe. And it doesn't mean he doesn't do anything about it because he's extremely dedicated to the political situation of the Tibetans. It doesn't mean that you have to be depressed to work hard. You know, for example, the Buddha and Jesus led revolutions that are still going on now. And the work didn't come just out of anger. It came out of love. So that if you're spending a lot of time hating what's going on and feeling terrible about it, I think the practice can be very, very helpful. Again, it's not to be complacent. We all do need to do something 
for this world. And one thing to do is, of course, as one Vietnamese Buddhist monk put it, is to be peace. If you want a peaceful world, start with yourself. Again, so that's eliminating certain uh, sentimentalities that are really not so helpful. You know, where we somehow feel so sad about what's going on. Again, we can't help but feel that because there's enough reason to. But if it's something that's going on a lot, I think it really should be investigated and see what that really is. Sometimes we use these outer things, you know, as an, as an occasion for us to be depressed about something else that's bothering us. Yes? I have, a, I have three questions. On three. Three. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the first one is, uh, well, why am I just stringing them together? You can choose which one you like. When you're sitting on a cushion and a mood comes up, and you almost experience it as pure energy, you don't know why it's there or where it's coming from, or you can't attach all your stuff to it. Like today, uh, I was experiencing restlessness, and it's certain, and I was investigating it. And then I just kind of couldn't go anywhere. What does further mean? Well, I was kind of getting sucked into the restlessness. So then you weren't aware anymore. Wait a minute. Sorry. And I was trying to go back. It was like going back to the breath. It was like in investigating the restlessness, I thought, oh, gee, my heart's beating. Uh, But I was finding it kind of... Just if you have some... What do you do when you hit kind of that stucky place where the thing is starting to take you over and you're trying to investigate and then you go back to the breath but it's kind of got you anyway. And, um, you know, and then I feel like I just sort of lose it. I, I, whatever samadhi I've got or whatever it is, you know, just kind of collapses. Yeah. Be, be simpler. I know we can't... Uh, it's like a burden that you've put on yourself, you know, to get the perfect samadhi, to get, the, get back to the breath, to not be restless, to not... Um, the best help is a, a different attitude with much more space around the whole event. Okay, so you're, let's say you're re- a mood comes upon you and it's restless, restlessness. And then you investigate it. Now, what does that mean to you, investigate? Uh, I try to see where it is in my body. Okay. Mm-hmm. While I'm experiencing the difficulty of the investigation, mm-hmm. the thing is escalating. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that is a, a one rule of thumb that to, to go back to the breath. Just go back to the breath. Oh, yes. Or uh, use the breath as a support while investigating. That, for some people, is extremely helpful. Have any of you tried that mm-hmm. and found it helpful? Do you see, it's not like a lot of practices, either you're with the breath or you're with restlessness. This is different. This is that the primary object is the restlessness because it's really obvious that that's what you should be with. It's taking over. Okay. So while you're with those sensations, which we're calling restless, in the background, it kind of recedes in the background somewhat, you feel the in-breath and the out-breath. And there's something in the soothing quality of being with the breath while you're investigating a non-soothing object or an unpleasant object, or a frightening object, by staying in touch with the in-breath and the out-breath, so that it would, if I had to put it into words, and this is paraphrasing 
the Anapanasati Sutta of the Buddha. Uh, being fully aware of restlessness, the yogi breathes in. Being fully aware of restlessness, the yogi breathes out. It's simultaneous. They're happening together. And so the, sometimes that can be a big help. But if not, just, just go back to your samadhi practice. That would be, uh, make the most sense. Well, it depends what you set for yourself. You see, there's a there's a specific practice. One uh, one very prominent school of vipassana, Mahasi Sayadaw style, where you intentionally make mental notes for everything that's happening. But I don't feel that's what you're saying. See, it sounds like you're just thinking while it's all happening. Okay, here's what I need to know. Are you using that technique of making mental notes for what's happening? Somewhat. Not, not, uh, Are you, see, if you know, you, you have to know what you're, every time you sit, it's very helpful to know what you're attempting to do. What have you set for yourself? If, you, if that's not clear, you're going to waffle all over the place. Because here's the difference. On, on one hand, it's a technique. You are intentionally, as something comes up, you apply a mental note to it. That's a very useful technique that's used. But if not, if the mind just thinks it, that's all right. It's not, it's not criminal. But that's part of the field of what we're observing. It's not something we're intentionally using to help us stay mindful. It's part of the field of what we have to be mindful of. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? So if you find that this is helpful, you might want to explore using this technique because it's a perfectly good one if you're drawn to it. Well, that's what the technique is. But then but when you do it, then you have to be really sensitive if there isn't subtle judgment hiding inside, like defending, judging, hard, you know. Uh, so that it sounds like it's a nice neutral technique, but really all it is is condemna- self-condemnation in disguise. That's, that, that's my question. It didn't feel judgmental, but... Didn't? It didn't, but I Good. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to check that. I was a little nervous about the words that they could be judgmental and it could be. Yeah. Okay. Now, again, here, this is uh, the practice really is artful. There's a lot of uh, free play for your own individual nature, for your own creativity. It's not a cookbook recipe. This is what you do. One, two, three, four, A, B, C. It really isn't. As you go on, you'll see that. Now, at the beginning, we do have to more or less standardize. And it's more like learning a musical instrument or dance where you do standard things over and over and over again until you then go freely. You know, you dance freely or play freely. So it's something like that. But a lot of the time, for example, it's not so much having, am I selfing right now? Am I selfing? See, that could become tedious. Then again, you might set 
for yourself a particular period of time where you're very sensitive to that happening. But most of the time, it's not so much that you're thinking about, am I selfing or not? Because if there's a flow, if the flow of mindfulness is keeping up with the flow of events, then you're not selfing because if you recall, the whole danger is when we're not aware. That the I and mind constantly is born. It's born a lot. I don't mean all the time. During a typical day. It's dangerous when there's no awareness accompanying it. If it just comes up, then we know it. We just hear the mind claiming something. Yes, I did that for him and I, you know, I'm one. Fine. And in the hearing of it, in other words, if there's awareness accompanying this, we're not trying to edit out. We can't. It would be exhausting. That is, the things that are coming out of this heart are just amazing what comes out of it. But what we can do is learn to meet what surfaces, and we never know what's going to turn up, with full awareness. And more and more as we get better at doing that, then what the ancients call taking the poison out of the snake. In other words, it's sort of something that sounds like it could be trouble, you know, sort of a, a self-centered kind of thought. But because we're aware, there's no venom in the, you know, the snake goes shh, and it goes like that, but nothing happens. So it's not dangerous. And I would say a lot of the time, it's much simpler. It's not so much thinking. It's more like... It's more like a parade. You know, have you ever seen, let's say, the, uh, the newsreels in the Soviet Union? You know, when, uh, when let's say, it's one of these, uh, the nation showing its strength, you know, it'll be like the tanks go by, you know, and the, let's say the, the heads of state are up, up high, and, you know, the tanks go by and they salute, and then the soldiers with those steps, you know, they go by and there's a salute, and then the navy marches by and a salute, you know, then the army marches by and a salute, and then, you know, it's all, it's a parade, you know, everything comes out, high there, you know, they go. Uh, it's not that different in the mind, you know, as we see the mind representing itself as being this and that, yeah, right, that goes, you know, and then the next one, and the next one, the next one, and it's a flow. It's letting the letting go at that point. It's, it's just happening so easily. It's just we're not getting stuck anywhere. It's what someone called keep a non-abiding mind. A Chinese Zen master said, "Keep a non-abiding mind," and that's of course the fruit of the practice. It's a very uh, high accomplishment is to keep a mind that's um, that can uh, can land on something but doesn't get stuck. You know, it can just be with what's there while it's there. When it's gone, fine. And then it can be with, with whatever is next. And it has, it's more, of the letting go is, is more graceful. It's, more, it's not sort of so bumpy of having to analyze and think and, you know, and ponder. And then now and then, though, we get an insight and maybe we pull back for a moment. Hmm, I guess that's what, well, that's what selfing is. Look at that. I didn't realize that. And that can be helpful. And then we go back to a much more just open and easy, just more natural just let things happen. Let the mind, just as we've been learning how to allow the breath to be natural, to just empty itself. If the breath wants to be long, let it be. If it wants to be shallow, let it be. Can we be in touch with the breath as it follows its nature? Can we be in touch with our mind as it follows its nature? Now, what you'll find is your ability to do this improves. And you're seeing impermanence, of course. That's what I'm talking about. You're seeing everything arise and pass away, arise and pass away you'll see that it's an immense healing to the mind, to the heart, to the being, whatever you want to call it. Because it's as if, uh, in allowing everything to go, go through, the, the mind purifies itself. It heals itself. And every time we grab onto something, you know, or we go like that, then, already, then we have trouble. So we, we're abiding somewhere. 
we, we've made a home. This is where I am. You know, we drop roots. Trouble, because no, you can't drop roots anywhere. In a world that's constantly changing, to get to grasp onto anything is an invitation to suffer. It makes no sense. Okay, in anticipation, maybe some of you are thinking, well, okay, this non-attachment stuff sounds good, but what about relationship? Is anyone thinking that? <laughs> no, you were thinking that, yeah. So you 
fall in love with someone, you marry someone, you live with someone, aren't we attached? Aren't we attached to our to children? So then I say, this is a totally unrealistic teaching. What are these people saying? How can you love someone and be non-attached? It sounds so cold. That gets said to me a lot. Okay, our starting point, or let's say a healthy way of, of bringing the practice into relationship in terms of this issue, is to not get too big for our britches. You know, to not get ahead of ourselves. Because the truth is that mainly when we get involved, there's a lot of attachment. We were lonely, we meet someone, oh, thank God, finally. And there's a lot of attachment. <laughs> okay. Okay, you know, we all know all the variations, the pulling away after the first few weeks, you know. And then, okay. Okay. But if we have an ideal of perfection, in other words, that it would be, what would it be like if the Buddha got married? You know, how would, how it, it's not going to work out too well. But what can be done and is being done by actual people like ourselves is that when you're in a relationship, and granted that a fair amount of the energy has to do with insecurity and attachment, because we're not perfect yet, you know? And of course, when we are, we may not want to be in a relationship, but I shouldn't say that, because that's not good for business. <laughs> do you mean I, this is, I'm going to become a nun or a monk out of this? I don't want to become a nun or a monk. I don't, I, no, I'm not saying you will, unless you really want to. If you really do, then it won't be a problem. But that might be, you know, 10 years from now or 20 years or 20 lifetimes from now. But what's realistic is, let's say, in, for people like ourselves, we enter into a relationship, we start where we are. And where we are is there's attachment in it and possessiveness. Okay, and we work with that. Now, it's, it's best if both people are willing to, to work with each other. But even if, if it's only one person is on the path, um, there's no question that you can loosen that attachment up a bit. So it's not strangling you, you know, it's just like a loose noose. You know, just like <laughs> hanging like that. And, and, and there's no question that you can become much less possessive instead of like, well, where are you going? When are you coming back? How, are you, how long are you going to be away? How are you? Instead of doing that, after a while, we start to see like, every time I do that, it feels terrible to me. You know, and then the other person hates it. I'll be right back. Whew, I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> so, as we, again, it's, it's your question, you know, is we, we, the, the letting go comes out of not kind of sprouting wings, you know, and just flying out of our attachment, but it comes from really getting to know what attachment is. Really taking the time and the trouble, and it takes courage and patience, it's not easy, is to really understand, oh, this is what attachment's like. And the be- an image came to me some years ago, I still find it helpful. You know a fly on fly paper? Okay, it's like s- stuck... Okay, now, what, let's say one thing is you try to free yourself from the attachment and you tear your wings. It doesn't work. Okay, the other thing is, this is the approach of Vipassana. The approach of Vipassana is, oh, look at that. I can't move this arm and, yeah. <laughs> the, head won't, the head turns about a tenth of an inch and the back doesn't move at all, does it? Yeah. Okay. okay. And you feel that, you, you go into what, what is attachment anyway, not as some ideology, but, and it's suffering. We see that when we're holding on like that or going like that, it is not a good way to live. So that out of that may grow a, gen, a genuine letting go. It comes out of intelligence, not out of an ideology. The Buddha said you shouldn't be attached. Okay, I won't be attached. And you rip your wings. It's not that. It's, it's out of 
out of understanding. The Buddha also talks so often, over and over and over again, about the importance of understanding, of wisdom, not to do things blindly, not to do things because just some teacher told you to do, or even the Buddha said, not because I told you to do it. Investigate, learn, understand the laws of nature. We're part of nature. And then out of that comes the strength, understanding has tremendous momentum and power. Yes? It, it could be, sure. You're experiencing boredom at work. Yeah. Okay. Maybe the more bored you'll get. I don't know. <laughs> okay, but go ahead. Yeah. So what do you want to do? Do you want to find something interesting to do? <laughs> there is nothing interesting here. I mean, for a while you're here. Okay. Um, I don't think it's different. You know, let's say the boredom here or the boredom at work. The difference is that we have a much better, we have controlled conditions here so that we can really get to learn about boredom. But uh, boredom is quite fascinating, by the way. It is. It's not boring at all if you're willing to look at it. Okay, so step number one is, let's say, you, supposing, you, as you just said, you feel bored. Okay, let's say there was a miniature interviewer inside of your head while you're at work and it would say to you, how do you know that you're bored? What do you mean, how do I know that I'm bored? I said, well, you just said you're bored. How do you know? I said, well, okay, I'm uh, droodling, drool, whatever it is, drooling, you know, whatever. <laughs> doodling, I'm doodling, uh, my foot's tapping, I'm, so, I'm looking at my watch, the content of my mind is I'm, I feel dull, unhappy, there's a gray quality to everything, um, I'm, my mind is fantasizing about all kinds of other exciting, I'd rather be golfing, you know, or whatever, you know. um, okay, fine. Then that's what you try to watch. I mean, just it's again the the fly caught on the flypaper. Is you bring your attention to exactly what you're feeling because that's the truth in the moment. The truth is you're bored, right? Okay. Now it doesn't have to be a condemnation. I'm bored. Now for many of us, one of the reasons we have such a hard time with it is because we've been brought up to never be bored. We always have to be very creative and self-reliant and you know have all these endless projects for. But sometimes. We're bored. Okay. So can you open your heart to boredom? Can you allow boredom in? Because that's what's happening to you. That's the truth. It's not to fight with it, to try to replace it with what you think would be interesting. Okay. Now, as you know, often we hate boredom. We just don't like what it feels like. Oh, no. Here comes boredom. I just hate feeling that way. Okay. So then you look at the resistance. It's not that you try to force the mind to get back to the boredom. But really what's prominent at this point is not boredom. It's resistance to boredom. 
is that you just don't want to feel those feelings. And it's that that you slip in under and feel. You try to learn how, what it feels like to not, to hate boredom. Do you see what I'm getting at? The restlessness. No good. I can see. Wherever it is, the body is often easier to do because sometimes in the mind it's so powerful, the mind like casts a spell and we get caught up. But the body is, is, is more accessible. That's not what you, you want a different answer though, right? Well, I, I thought I was trying to do that and it just, I felt like I just got in deeper. I didn't quite get out of the way. Oh, we see, okay, now we have the problem. Is that you want to get rid of boredom. You see, it got me in deeper. I thought this technique would get me out of boredom. <laughs> it's the, 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 think of awareness more as an aesthetic. You know what has helped me a lot is um, the attitude towards observation is more like a naturalist. Let's say someone who loves birds or who loves to see the sunrise, sunset, or loves to watch the ocean. Or looking at beautiful art or listening to beautiful music. It's not the kind of, it's not so instrumental you know, it's just uh, just grasping it, just experiencing it just as it is. Now, once one of the reasons it's so hard for us and why we don't see, in quotes, results from our observation is because we're trying to get results with our observation. We're trying to, to use observation as a ray gun, you know, sort of like to shoot down boredom. You know, and especially you've heard like, well, if you're really aware, the boredom will, you'll see through it, you'll see it's impermanent, it lacks ownership, there's no self, it falls away. Okay, oh great, and then you aim your awareness towards the boredom and it just gets stronger. Okay, but you have to, part of the problem for most of us is we don't know how to observe. That is, we've been brought up to observe with some instrumental value. That is, we observe to make money or we observe to get make a deal, you know, or we observe to something in it for us. We don't know the art of pure observation. To just see for the joy of it. Just to see for its own sake. Just, it's like learning. for its own, Just to see what is boredom. To really investigate it in a sense with the openness of a scientist. Of a real scientist. Now, if you can learn to do that, and again, what you have to see is that when you're not doing that, in other words, you'll come to pure observation by noticing how you're invested in looking and how you want a result from your looking. And it's in seeing that 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 starts to thin out, just like the restlessness thins out by seeing it and becomes patience. Pure observation comes out of seeing how we're pushing objects around. We're trying to do something to them with awareness. Now, if you don't do that, awareness is very powerful. It's a very subtle energy. And have any of you seen that? That it it, it burns things up. Krishnamurti wrote a book. The title is called The Flame of awareness. It's a very good term for what, as awareness, the more refined it becomes, the more powerful it becomes. But it's not like you're trying to burn anything up. It's just the pure seeing uh, has that effect. Now, if you can stick with it, sometimes what happens is you penetrate more deeply into boredom. And often you'll find that there are other things in there like aggression, anger. You'll see that the boredom is a mask. If you, not, I'm not saying always, but I've certainly seen it sometimes. And if you penetrate once through the boredom and feel that there was something else cooking underneath there and that the boredom was a way, a strategy, a way of managing it, 
so that you didn't have to get in touch with something that was much more frightening, maybe fear, whatever it is. Suddenly you realize that boredom is a natural event it's, it's well worth looking at. Yes? Um, what if it's not other people or uh, job or anything? What if it's your own lifestyle that seems to be the, your you know, old habits and lifestyle that tends to inhibit awareness? Because Mm-hmm. Although our, our lifestyle is not, it's not the same as it is here. I mean, mm-hmm. I understand. It's not appropriate for at home. Yes. And yet, uh, how do you, how do you know what is appropriate? Okay. Um, one, a very beautiful uh, application of this practice, is to scrutinize uh, what you're calling your lifestyle, and if we put it into the form of a question, it would be, how do we actually live? Underline actually, not how do you think you live or how you would like to live or how someone else would like you to live, but how do I actually live? And the only way you can find that out is by paying attention. How do I, I wake up and how do I wake up and how do I do, how do I eat? We've been doing it here. How do I walk and how do I do this? And, and you start to find out not these ideals, not these images of our life. So we get back to that, you know, about the difference between uh, self-knowledge and um, images, self-images. And so, you have to have a strong stomach sometimes when you start to see how you actually live. That is, we say one thing, you know, we set all these goals in the morning for what we're going to accomplish, and then we don't do anything that would lead in that direction. You know, you know I want to go to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but we buy tickets for Colorado. Well, it's not, we're not going to get there. You know, and often, and there's a, in our practice, there's a term called clear comprehension of purpose. Uh, sati Sampajanya. And that means uh, awareness is a very helpful there in that if, we, if, we, if there's something that we're attempting to do, if we've set this as what we're attempting to do, awareness can help us see, are we doing that which actually leads to what we said we want to do? If we're doing, you've been doing it in this retreat. Let's say you've set for yourself doing the walking meditation. And you start to walk and suddenly the mind is out to lunch. It's all over. Well, there's something saying, no, we decided we're going to do walking meditation. Oh, that's right. Okay. And w- so then you, you come back. So you're bringing into alignment what you say you're doing, you want to accomplish, with what you're actually doing. Does, a, does it lead to it? And more and more you begin to see that. Now, in terms of meditation, to give you a few uh, examples, once you start to value uh, awareness, let's say, uh, as the most precious thing there is, Awareness. It's not just some little psychological faculty because as it gets deeper, you'll see that, that you are awareness in the truest sense. If you're anything, you're awareness. Okay, and the Buddha is the fulfillment of awareness. Buddha, just pure knowing. Okay. Now, once you begin to respect that, let's say you begin to value a meditative, meditative living. And we all do or we wouldn't be here. But I mean really value it. You start to understand that it's as important as making it for lunch. You know, or other things that we never have doubts about. We might forget, when you get home, you'll see that at least for most of us, we'll forget to sit, but we won't forget to go to breakfast or lunch. You know, or there are other things like that. Now, what if we begin to really genuinely value a life of awareness? Then, a lot of the things we do, we begin to see uh, does this hamper the practice of meditation, is it an impediment or does it enhance it? Let me give you the most obvious example that comes to mind. 
let's say you eat, you begin to eat. And if you remember, it was suggested as you begin to pay attention as to how you eat, you may start to learn that certain foods uh, contribute to the, to the mind being more agitated, that hindrance, more restless. Other foods contribute to the mind being more dull and sleepy. That's another hindrance. These are the, the, some of the hindrances that Narayan talked about. Okay, and also the quantity, of course. If we eat a lot, we don't have any blood for our brain. It's all in the, in the tummy. And then what happens? Well, we know what the sitting after lunch is like, right? All of us. So that now it is possible, because we've all done, many of us have done this, to overeat, eat the wrong food, then sit down with the cushion, <laughs> go like that, you know, and then say, I'm never going to overeat again. It's just awful and terrible. I hate the feeling of being on the cushion, wasting my time here. The Buddha was an awakened one. Here am I sleeping. You know, uh, and then it comes time to eat again. And we start with you. We go through the same thing. And then we come back to the cushion. I'm never going to do this again because I see when I overeat and I get sleepy. And I, this is not a meditative life. I'm not a good yogi. And you know, just like over. No, it's like, you know, in my own case, I did that at an Indian restaurant. You just... Uh, Narayan was witness to this. You know, I don't know how long this took. Was it years? I don't know. What? Yeah. It would be something would go something like this. We'd go in, we'd eat the food, it would taste good, we'd ha- and I would have just, you know, just, it would be with me for hours. You know, I'd say, boy, that food tastes good, but what, you know, what you go through after, it's just not worth it. You know, want to go to an Indian restaurant? Sure. <laughs> you know, and so finally, the day came like, I get it. <laughs> Indian restaurant equals suffering for me. I have nothing against Indian restaurant. Okay, now that's wisdom in action. That's re- that is, our practice is, is, is taking advantage of the law of cause and effect. It's really learning. It's, it's, it's just bringing intelligence into our life. It's seeing that when I do this, I get that. I suffer. When I don't do that, it seems, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's more reasonable. Well, food is an obvious one, but more and more you're going to begin to see other things. Now, the Buddha lists a few. For example, regarding the factors of enlightenment, these are qualities of mind that, are, that contribute very strongly to an awakened mind. And in almost all of them, what he says is, for example, if you want uh, to develop the quality of equanimity, hang out with people who are very relaxed and who are at peace, not with people who are all over the place and restless. If you want to, let's say, develop certain moral qualities like honesty, don't hang out with people who are lying, cheating, stealing, and killing all the time. You know, be with people who really are strong that way. Whatever the quality is. And so you begin to see uh, it's humbling. You realize I'm not Superman, you know, or Superwoman, and that it seems like the conditions that I'm in influence me a lot. So I'll do my best to be in conditions. I'm a, I'm a young meditator. I'm just like a, a delicate little plant. I need protection. So I'm going to avoid situations that seem to destroy things. Now, you have to be careful with that because you live in the world. And much of the time we can't control it. We, and so we have to be with who we have to be with. And so there we then have to learn about our reactions. And that's what I meant the problem of living in a world of non-meditators. It's not really a joke. Most of the world is not going to meditate. Ever. I feel pretty confident in that. <laughs> they're just not going to. And so that means that they're going, not going to investigate. 
They're not going to develop samadhi. They're not going to do any of the things that perhaps you're beginning to see as valuable. That means they're going to lose their temper immediately. They're going to be very possessive. They're going to be very grabby. Going to get ang- you know all these things. And these and they can't help it. That's a normal. That's the way we all are. Aren't we? Aren't we that way now? You know. Well, let's say little by little, some of that thins out. But the world keeps rolling on. It keeps not meditating. And so, if we set it up in such a way that we become so precious and so pure that the only people that we'll be with are those people who've done at least five three-month retreats, you know, <laughs> only eat sprouts, you know, do tai chi, and we, we won't even be, get on the same bus with anyone who's done... Well, it's going to be a little bit constrictor to use your expression lifestyle. Yeah. Maybe one more and then... Uh, yes? Can you say more about awareness? You just said something was very revealing. You said the Buddha was pure awareness. Mm-hmm. And I, I was interested in one of your talks when you talked about uh, the knower. The what? The knower. The yes. Knower, the thing that knows. What mm-hmm. That which knows. I, I, it's, it's very mysterious. Oh, for me too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I, yes, who's watching the parade? And who's, who's watching awareness in the air? And who's, okay. What's well, you're only asking the biggest question. <laughs> yeah. I can help you get started because I can, let's say, right now, uh, pinch yourself real hard. Okay, did you feel that? You were aware of that, right? It starts there. It starts very simply. You know, you feel that, a sound, like if you're hearing my voice and you're really hearing, you were aware of that sound. And now, what we're doing is we're practicing, you could make this distinction. We're practicing attention, let's say. We're, we're aiming our, our attention at something. Let's say we're doing the walking meditation. We're able to do that. Let's practice that. Let's practice. Again, you could pick different words to mean this, but I'm just picking attention. Uh, and it's confusing when you read the literature because the words are used differently. So let's say we're, the foot raises up and we, we're practicing attention to it. So we get better at that. So one use is just of the intentional practice of uh, paying attention to what we're experiencing in the moment. And then sometimes the word awareness is used in a different way. I'm using it more as meaning at all anything. Uh, awareness could mean it's not something you can practice. It's something that you suddenly you find yourself in it. There is awareness. Now, of course, I can't report to you uh, the far reaches of the journey because I'm not a Buddha. Okay. But what I can tell you is that uh, at some point, you may even have an inkling of it now, you'll see that you are awareness. You're the knowing. You're the knowing because, and not only that, that's what sets us free. Uh, awareness sets things right. For, for example, any of the qualities that bother us, anything that you've brought up tonight, when you're aware of it, that means in a sense you've stepped out of the problem. You know, there's just you've stepped into something else where you're not, you're not uh, being victimized by that. Because now, before, you've identified with the object. And in the process of identification with the object, you suffer the fate of that object. Okay. So that what you'll start to see, and it, and it can, at some point, it can get quite frightening, or the idea gets frightening. So, hey, wait a minute. You know, then who am I? You know, and that's what I meant the other evening, is that at a certain point, Whatever comes up, it's not so much who am I as who, it's who I aren't. You start to see that no matter what it is, I'm not that. Now, the Hindus have a practice. In other words, whatever it is, it's not that because it's an idea. 
It's a concept. Uh, in Vedanta, they have a technique. It's very similar to what we're doing. And they call it neti neti. And what that means is no matter what turns up, their frame of reference is more God. And no matter what turns up, it means uh, that's not God. And then something else, that's not God. That's not God. And so it's, our path is the, it's sometimes called via negativa, the negative way. But that doesn't mean being, it's not negativity. What it means is we let go of, it's, but you come, to the, you come to the supreme, whatever you want to call that, through letting go. Instead of trying to get to God or trying to get to enlightenment, you let go of ignorance. You let go of, uh, and it's sort of like, uh, it's like a striptease in a way. You know, you just keep dropping things and dropping things and dropping things. And at a certain point, you have to drop the dropping because you get very attached to that. And so the, fo- <laughs> the, the far reaches of it have to do with the fact that in a certain sense, we're nobody. We're absolutely no one. What? We're back to those ra- the rabbi again. You know, bragging about what a nobody they are. Yeah. Um, and yet, there's a conventional life that has to be lived. And so, it, that gets lived out. But what if we didn't get attached to all the things that we think we are? That, that we just functioned. You know, in other words, we functioned happily without building a status out of everything. You know, that we did our job. We did it with excellence, I hope. But we didn't make a doer out of it. You know, not only is the job getting done, but, you know, we have to give it some kind of status ranking that is even, it's done professionally. The sociologists tell us every few years how the occupations stack up. You know, like, professor was, you know, almost the highest and then it dropped a little, then it goes up high and cab driver drops down here. You can actually find out your value, you know, by just ask a sociologist. But can we really? What this is saying is we're all the same value. Once you let go of the attachment to all these social indicators, then what's we all are the same. Your mind and my mind is the same. If you're thinking and attached to thinking and I'm doing the same, we're very different. You're this and I'm that and we'll even go to war over it. But as we go deeper, what we have in common becomes more and more obvious. And I don't mean just to have a body and a heart and all that is the the whatever you want to call it, it's it's obviously it's we're all it. Okay. Well, okay. I just would like a, just a little information about you and what you do and what. Well, I have this uh, eight by ten poster that I sell, <laughs> <laughs> and Ryan has one too. It's it's only a hundred dollars. <laughs> I do the same stuff, only in Cambridge. So there's a place that's like this. Well, it's smaller. It's non-residential. It's more for people living in the city to come in and practice. Oh, okay, I am. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's called, it's false modesty. <laughs> okay, in, in the sense, in one sense, we all are. Is that how you mean it? Yes. No, that's fine. I'm a Buddha. Okay, but in terms of fully realizing what seems pretty clear that we all are, no, I haven't fully realized that. Sorry. Disappointed? No, that doesn't start with me. Okay, good. I, I would think you're in big trouble if you were otherwise. I'm just some guy from Brooklyn who's, you know, just talking a lot. Who taught the Buddha to meditate? What? Who taught the Buddha to meditate? I have to ask him. Okay. There was one more and then let's really uh, do some other things.
Can I see a hand? Okay. Can we have a moment's silence? May we all continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. May such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation. Why don't we uh, take about a um, five-minute break and then let's have a short sitting to finish the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.